You are listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. What is it to climb as a pharmacy owner? CLIMB stands for care, lead, innovate, motivate, and balance. Join Retail Management Solutions each month for a brand new webinar with interesting discussions on new pharmacist roles, pharmacy industry experts, and business innovators to give you insight on important pharmacy trends and the best way to grow your bottom line. The CLIMB webinar series is produced exclusively for pharmacies and provides tools that any pharmacy can use to reach and even exceed profitability and customer centricity goals. Let's listen in to the latest Climb podcast episode with Brad Jones, CEO of RMS. And my guest today is another amazing friend of mine, dear friend, Colin Coward. And for those of you who don't know who Colin is, he's the host of The Herd, which you can find anywhere. Just Google it. It airs simultaneously on FS1 and the Fox Sports Radio Network. He's all over the internet. Just look him up, Colin Coward. Um, Colin is also the author two-time best-selling, the New York Times best-selling author of two different books, You Heard Me and Raw. We're going to be talking about those books in a moment. And if he didn't have enough to do already, he is the founder, a new founder of a new uh, podcast and digital media company called The Volume. Colin, welcome. Thank you for joining us for Climb. Oh, it's great to see you. And uh, uh, we were just talking before we went on about the pictures behind you. Uh, Steve Bridge, our high school football coach, and then your brother, Jack, who he and I were inseparable in high school. You had gone to the Air Force Academy. Uh, You were the smart of the three of us. You were the most willful, aspirational. We were a couple of beer drinking, don't tell your parents knuckleheads. (laughs) But we had a great upbringing, great life together. Well, you know, and that brings me to the first book, my favorite book, the best book of all time, probably because on page three, and my brother's still a little irked about this because on page three, it says my brother's best friend, Brad Jones, and his name isn't mentioned anywhere. Uh, so <laughs> it's my 15 minutes of fame. Well, it's forever in fame, right? And, and I love it. It's a story you tell pretty regularly on the air. We're going to tell the story in a minute, but it's a, a story you tell on the air. And every time you tell it, I get phone calls uh, from my friends saying, did Colin just talk about you? Um, so, but let's talk about page three, because what you're referring to is a story I told you when I was 15 or when I was 16 years old and, uh, a junior, my junior year, uh, playing football. And you also tell a story, um, about when you were eight, uh, and your dad and the Harlem Globetrotters. Um, so, and both of those stories really of the, the first four pages of your book are about those two stories and how they impacted you. So let's start there. Why don't you tell the audience about those stories and the impact? Well, I grew up in a small rural town on the coast of Washington. And so uh, I always felt very removed from uh, even local pro teams. That was the big city. That was Seattle. That was the Space Needle. That was a science center. That was big buildings. I was a small town kid. So uh, almost like you would go if you were going to... um, one of those big churches or to watch a, a, a motivational speaker, you would be in the crowd and you would look up at Tony Robbins. I felt like I was watching, looking up at Seattle as a small town kid. There was a, a fear uh, and, a, and a curiosity about the big city. I had a very protective British mother who was not going to let me go there unless perhaps it was with your family to a Seahawk game, which I also remember. Um, and so 
when you're a little kid and the Harlem Globetrotters come to town or Brad Jones, the brother of my best friend, Jack Jones, tells you a story about going into a locker room of then the world champion Raiders, it sticks with you for life. And I had two early moments in my life, which I detail in the book, that, um, you know, what you see on television uh, is not necessarily always the truth. That is refined and sandpapered for uh, a higher quality broadcast. And so two stories that I heard, the first two that I can recall, um, really showed me as I wanted to be a, a broadcaster that there was a story behind the story. And my dad uh, was an optometrist uh, 20 minutes from my hometown, as you know, Aberdeen, Washington. And the Harlem Globetrotters were in town in Hoquiam. They weren't really, as I joked, they weren't really the Harlem Globetrotters. They were like the East Harlem Globetrotters. It was, we didn't get Meadowlark Lemon, right? <laughs> um, so my dad was a workaholic. He picks me up. We rush. We're, the gym's almost packed. We're, we're kind of late. And we pull in to the Hoquiam uh, basketball facility, uh, but we kind of go into an alley, a wrong alley, and in his Buick Riviera. And the Globetrotters, the bus is there, and they're out there like drinking beers, like Olympia or Rainier beer. And I was a little boy, and I remember sitting next to him. My dad's thinking, I could see my dad like react like, oh, crap. He backs out. We get a parking space. We go in. I remember we sat like right in front, but we had good seats, but we were like late, like the game had just about started. And I just couldn't get that, that I couldn't unsee that. And I'm like the whole game, as I'm watching them play, I'm thinking they're like drunk. They're like, they're, they're just, this is just entertainment. Like I was so serious and couple that with a story you told me years later about how you had won something, I think through um, your grades, you'd, you'd a leadership council or something, you had won some award and you got access or something, if I recall, to uh, one of the rewards was you could go before the game, a Seahawks Raider game into the locker room of the Raiders. And the Raiders had these legendary players, Kenny Stabler, Bolitnikov, Fred Branch, uh, 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 Cliff Branch, Matuzak. I mean, they were really the bad boys of the NFL, right? And the Seahawks had squeaky clean Jim Zorn and Sherman Smith, and they were so likable, right? And you went into the locker room and they were sitting there smoking and playing cards. And I immediately flash back to the Globetrotters. And I just, I remember thinking after you told me that story, that if I was ever a sportscaster, that I was going to tell people the story behind the story that anybody could just say, I wanted access because you'd given me access and nobody else I knew knew that story. And I got by accident globetrotter access. And it really framed how I saw the world um, that I wanted to tell people, I wanted to work sources and have information and access other people didn't have because I couldn't be the only person fascinated about that. And so I think my career has largely been built on the belief that storytelling and looking behind the corners and calling sources and being connected, anybody can have an opinion, but the opinion is more uh, valid and justifiable based on correct sourcing. So we often think of journalists as, you know, people with a hat, a press badge and a, and a, and a piece of paper and a pen, but I, I can be a journalist too. It's called my iPhone and I text and call 
I mean, I have a cool phone. I got a lot of famous people on it and I work those sources because I think what separates me from a lot of people is access and information and stories they won't get other places in a very, very competitive business. And so I, I think it's another example how your childhood can can really frame how you view the world. I remember one time, Brad, about 15 years ago, I was at a gym working out. And I, uh, my daughter was like four. Uh, my son wasn't born yet. And uh, she talked about this female child psychologist talked about, she goes, you know, the first six to seven years of your life are really valuable. And if you're loved and there's no physical or, or verbal abuse, your kids are safe. They'll, they'll overcome virtually any obstacle. It's to be loved and uh, uh, almost spoiled and there for your kids. And I go back to my childhood and I think of just those early visuals and those early stories and how even today I'm, I have this insatiable need to know the story behind the story. Now, you could argue that I'm, I'm, I'm jaded or I'm cynical, but I think, I think a little bit of that is healthy in my profession that don't take the PR firm's word for it. Don't take the politician or the coach's word for it. There is, there is something uh, I always say stories only leak if somebody wants them leaked. <laughs> like I've had a lot of secrets in my day and they don't get out because I don't win if it gets out and they don't win if it gets out. Stories are out because somebody wants it out. And my job is to figure out who wants that story in the paper. That's the story behind the story. Well, you know, in your second book, you uh, you start off by talking uh, about some things, but Howard Cosell comes up, and and uh, and I, I I smiled when I read that um, because back in the day, I remember in my parents' living room, you impersonating Cosell, and us just laughing our butts off as you as you were doing an amazing job, by the way, an incredible right. Howard Cosell impersonation. Uh, and then all the stats that you knew, which just blew our minds with with how early and, that, you know, that was again when we were in when in high school. So uh, I'm not going to ask you to do a Howard Cosell impersonation unless you really want to. Um, <laughs> I did everybody. I think I I think I impersonated local announcers. You know, it's funny. I don't know of the people watching this. Do you have any Washington, the state of Washington pharmacists? Oh yeah, absolutely. So it's so funny because I talked to Bob Rondo. So I told Bob Rondo was the voice of the Huskies for 30 yeah. years. Yeah, sure. And I used to listen to Bob as I was a college student and write down notes about his pacing and his tempo and his teasing. You'll get a kick out of this because you listened to him for years. And so I had said on a radio station in Seattle how I admired Bob Rondo and he has no idea, but I literally stole things from Bob Rondo, little techniques. And they said, oh, give us a Bob Rondo impression. And there's not a lot of people doing Bob Rondo impressions. And I, 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 so I did the Bob Rondo impression and Rondo was listening and he's like, that's a really good Bob Rondo impression. So <laughs> you'll appreciate this. I was a kid. I can remember this. I formation backs divide. Danny Green in motion left to right. Humil and back. Up the left sideline, touchdown, Washington. And Rondo heard it. <laughs> and he literally called the station. He said, hey, get Coward to call me. So I called Bob Rondo. 
And I told him, I said, you're pacing your tempo, your staccato style. I'm like, I used to take notes on all these guys. How would Cosell indubitably an outrageous claim by Frazier down goes. And I would watch. And I'll be honest with you. I didn't get rid of those and probably till I was late 20. So I had impersonated so many people that it was hard to find my own voice until I was 27, 28, because I was doing 8% Costas, 12% Howard, 9% Rondo. Cause I had so many of these kind of seminal voices Uh, I taped everything. I listened um, the way they would would talk about uh, confusing situations and be word efficient. So it took me years and years. So I didn't sound like an 8% knockoff of everybody I'd ever listened to. (laughs) Well, you know, when we talked before, you you actually talked about um, how uh, there were people along the way, every step of the way that helped yeah. you progress in your career. And, you know, and I recall, um, you know, I, I recall after you graduated uh, from uh, from Eastern that, uh, you know, I think I'm not sure where your first gig was, but I, I remember, you know, coming out and seeing you in Vegas when you were the voice of the Vegas, uh, Las Vegas stars, the, the, the yeah. minor league baseball team. And, uh, um, and you donated those cool hats for my uh, my boys and girls club baseball team. Yes, I remember um, that. Yeah, and uh, um, you know, and then I think from there, uh, and and uh, and then from there on to Portland, where you actually started the herd. Uh, yeah, I mean, that thing's been going on. You started the herd, and what year was that in Portland? Well, I would say um, so. I've been at Fox six, ESPN ten, sixteen. So about uh, 16, so I was there. I would say that was 22 years ago where the herd, 22 to 23 years ago where the herd, where I officially yeah. named the show The Herd. Yeah, that's, that's just amazing. But, you know, as you, as the, the thing I think that, that caught me was how you talked about how there were people along the way, every step of the way. And I, and I think personality has a lot to do with that, being personable, likable, uh, you know, that, that you, that you, uh, that you're really trying to make a difference. Um, so, you know, what, what, uh, tell a little bit about that experience. Well, um, this would be a foreign concept to somebody who listens to me, because once you go on the air, you are going to be theatrical. I am talking for three hours. I don't want to be monotone. So there is a performance art to what I do. Um, you could be Vin Scully. You could be Jim Nance. There is Joe Buck. You have to know how to rise to the moment, how to make it special. And when I do my show, um, you know, being authoritative and saying stuff with conviction matters. But I, I, I always feel the two things um, that have driven me is fear and humility, is that uh, growing up uh, with my dad was a successful doctor, but he was an alcoholic and it tore my family apart. And there's always been, you know, I've gone to therapy enough to know that I think what drove my career um, for the first 20 years of it was fear of going back, fear of being irrelevant, fear of uh, being isolated, fear of not making it. Uh, when you come from a small town and you don't have a great support system, um, I think I'm more joyful today. The last 10 years of my career, I've really put my arms around it. I, um, I'm much more um, appreciative and grateful. Um, I, the first 10 to 15 years of my life, um, it was a race against um, failing. I didn't enjoy it as much. Not that it wasn't, you know, I traveled. I love doing 
what I did and the audience wouldn't be able to tell. But I, I think there's a, a humility when you grow up in a small town from a broken family, you don't want to go back. Um, and that little nine-year-old boy is, you know, that's always in me. Um, I think the other thing is I'm eternally grateful. I know I live an incredible life. I've got my health. Um, you know, I take my one milligram of Propecia because I don't want to have all my hair. I need hair. I do not look good without it. Uh, that, that is the one thing, but you know, I, I tell my sister all the time, Marlene, she still lives right by our parents, um, house. And I tell her all the time, I'm, my dad was a doctor. My mom was an honor student. And I'm like, I got their brain power. I got their curiosity. I said, both my kids are curious. I said, my dad was a doctor. My dad's brother was a doctor. My mom was just a thoughtful, funny, witty British woman. And I said, I got a head start in everybody. Like I had really curious, thoughtful parents and they knew your parents. And um, I feel very lucky for that. Um, I think sometimes it's it's the disease of me thinking, oh, I am doing this all on my own. I'm so smart and I'm so successful. Uh, uh, and that's kind of the disease of me, which is not understanding how valuable teamwork, sacrifice, um, you know, luck to some degree, having the right DNA that you don't have chronic illness. Uh, I feel I've been I've been very fortunate. And um and again, if you listen to me on the air and the bravado, you'd think, oh, please, this guy's. But uh, a lot of that is understanding sort of the mechanism of theater. You know, I, when you talk to yourself <laughs> for three hours a day, <laughs> you got to have one or two screws loose. I mean, it's not normal to talk about. I talk, you know, Larry King once I was on Larry King's show and Larry King said. He goes, you talk to yourself for three hours a day. And I said, Larry. You should hear the other 14. It's even more entertaining. <laughs> he goes, really? And I said, yes. How do you think I talk all these rants out? I jog. I talk to myself. I drive. So, you know, I mean, I, it, it's, I just feel very lucky. I, I guess in the end, I just to wrap a bow around it, I just feel very grateful and very lucky to be who I am and where I am and the, the family I had. But I, I think that, um, you know, to your credit, that's about adapting. Yeah. Um, and and, and I think, you know, that's uh, in tying in, in tying this into our audience a little bit. One of the things that uh, I think all of us in business have to do is adapt. Um, things have changed dramatically over the last 30 years. They've changed incredibly in the pharmacy world uh, over the last 40, 30, 20, 10 and five years. Uh, business is very different. It, we've been in business for 23 years. It's also changed dramatically. Yes. And you're either you're either changing or dying is the way yeah. I see it. You're either adapting and you know, yeah. or you're or you're failing. Um, and so I think business has to maintain relevance. And yeah. And uh, so and I and I talk to the pharmacists about this all the time and pharmacists about this. And, and that's what this CLIMB, which stands for Care, Lead, Innovate, Motivate and Balance, as I, I told you previously. And that's what this is about, is bringing speakers and guests and panelists that can talk about the things that they're doing to adapt to the changes in the marketplace. Um, I would imagine 
that you have seen, well, I know you've seen uh, major oh, yeah. changes in, you know, in the media world. Um, so let's just for this, you know, let's have, let's discuss that just a little bit. How do you maintain relevance? Well, um, my life, like yours and the people watching, um, we, we, we have multiple actions a day. We get up, we go to the bathroom, we shower, we drive to work. The actions of my life are largely simple. Uh, the repetitive. Uh, I'm a creature of habit. My life will be shaped, however, by how I react to things. Uh, a moody boss, a detour on the road, a schedule gets canceled, a personal snafu, poor judgment. Um, and so I, I, I tell my kids this all the time is your, your life will overwhelmingly by shape by how you react to a nonlinear imperfect world. It won't be your actions. You're at, we do the same things every day. I mean, I am so, I mean, literally if, if somebody wanted to, uh, if I was a mobster, I'd be dead by yesterday. I mean, I'm, I do the same path, the same <laughs> thing. I'm the most predictable human on the planet. You know, <laughs> Vinny, the chin, go get this guy in third and Elm. He'll be there at two fifteen every day. Like I, <laughs> um, and so, but my reactions, uh, I think I've gotten a lot better and, and a lot of that is coping skills and emotional um, discipline. You know, I take, Brad, I, I've taken a lot of cues um, from the athletes I cover. I think Tom Brady's not the most physically gifted receiver uh, or quarterback. But what Tom is, he's the most emotionally disciplined player I've ever seen. From the commitment to his body, the commitment to learning, uh, the commitment to vulnerability, uh, the commitment to practicing being sacked, his emotional, his emotional discipline is the greatest I've ever seen. Um, LeBron James is a great example of courage and the willingness to do things that are wildly unpopular and not worry about how they're viewed and not be consumed by how people are going to react to his belief system based on his childhood. So, you know, I, 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 when I look at my life and I, and I try to just be curious and watch how people do things, um, I, I think the way I've maintained relevance is the ability to pivot quickly. Um, I try to keep my life very simple. I do content. So this is what I do. I produce thought provoking content. I think about it all day. It just comes down to finding the platform that's growing and discarding the platform that's dying. So I, I've always thought about this in my business is there's, there's a lot of noise out there. I try to, I almost, I, I try to distill what I do down to one word, content, be thought provoking. And I know that my content makes salespeople money and my management money and me money. So I know if I create good content, it will find a home and very smart people will put it on the platforms to succeed. Um, my business changes so often that I used to sign contracts at ESPN and halfway through the contract, a new platform would emerge like podcasting and I wouldn't even be getting paid for it. My company would be making money off it. So I started signing shorter contracts because the platform, TikTok, you sign a contract, TikTok, you're like, you know, you don't want to be in a seven-year contract where the company makes a fortune off your, your image. So um, I, I just think, and I don't know the pharmaceutical business well at all, although, you know, I hung around at your dad's pharmacy for most of my childhood, but the ability to 
if you really trust your acumen and you trust your values and you trust your brand and your service, just be looking for opportunities to double down on what works and new stuff works all the time and discard things that don't. Um, loyalty is for your family and your children. It's for a best friend. It's not for a product. If it's not working, don't use it. I say this all the time. And I've said this around my bosses. I am loyal to what's working. Not you. My audience may not follow me. I'm loyal to me and the truth and the platform that's growing. And I think in your business, there could be new heart medications out. There could be new services available. Um, you know, I, I think, and it sounds like, boy, that's cold. It's not cold. It's survival. And we're all playing economic survival in a world that is incredibly fluid now. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that, and that, uh, you know, I think one of the things that frustrates me from time to time when I'm talking to pharmacists is, is, you know, complaining about things and not adapting and changing because there are, there are plenty of businesses and there are plenty of opportunities uh, to succeed. There are plenty of opportunities to make money, but you, you can't make money the way that you used to make money. Uh, and in your case, it's a changing platform, but really in the pharmacy world, it is as well. It's a changing platform. It's changing services. It's just a completely different environment. When, when we were kids and, and we were playing in the back room of my dad's store, you know, most of the business was being paid for by cash. It wasn't insurance money and it wasn't government money. People were coming in and paying cash for prescriptions in the 70s. Um, and, uh, you know, that isn't the case today. It represents like 12% or something of the overall money that is received in a pharmacy is in the form of cash payments uh, for prescriptions anyway. Um, <clears throat> so businesses have to adapt. And uh, um, so... I think that's, you know, the key takeaway that I continually try to push forward and climb with all of the speakers that we bring that we bring to the table. Um, So let's let's talk a little bit about um, your new company, because this is really about adapting. Right. You you uh, you have contracts with Fox and iHeartRadio. And then uh, you have a new company that you founded and you have, what, 12 employees. Uh, 14. I've added two since we last talked. Nice. Uh, it's, a, it's a small company. Um, no, this is a, a prime example. And I had a real barrier here because my network television employer and my syndicated radio employer pushed back on this. But I had a steadfast and strong belief. Uh, they thought, oh, it's a threat. Colin's going to create his own company and leave. It's going to dilute our TV audience and our radio audience. If people can hear Colin on his podcast company, The Volume, why would I go to his TV and radio? And I argued the opposite. I argued that if I make myself more available to the audience, they are then deeper invested in me. I can get Colin all the time. Boom. So my network companies thought, oh, they'll peel off us. And I said, no, I said, and I gave them, I tried to simplify it. I said, I sleep for seven hours a day and I work for about seven. Now that's because I have a staff. It used to work a lot. It used to be a nine to 10 hour day. So 14 hours a day, let's put it up to 16 for the average person, right? They sleep eight, they work eight. Okay. That that's 16. I have eight hours left. If I exercise for an hour, eat for an hour, nap for an hour, which most people don't, I have five hours left. And my takeaway, and I just laid it out for him. I said, what do we do in those five hours? I said, we're on our phones. 
were looking for content, mostly unhappy with the content provided. So that if I provide more, it will get people more deeply invested to me and they'll listen to all of my stuff more. And that's exactly what has happened in seven months. My radio ratings have gone up, my television's gone up, and my podcast is growing. So I just simplified it. I said there were barriers, there were doubters, there were critics. But um, again, the, the solution was in focus on content, dedication to my staff and my product. I didn't have a lot of money to start this company. This was, this was I, I, I pay one employee. I do it for free. As I grow the company, I'm not going to take a salary for two years, but it was a clear vision. Um, we believed that we wanted to hire people. We couldn't compete against networks. We wanted to hire people who talk sports, but had really different backgrounds and angles on sports. We hired a woman who was a pro wrestler and a comedian. She's a riot. Um, we, we, we've hired, you know, a, a, a professional comedian who's a sports gambler. We fired, and it took a lot, but our thing was little budget, pushback from corporate entities, but we're going to create this tunnel that we think is going to make people see a different side of me they've never seen, a little more raw, edgier side. They will not bail on my corporate projects. They'll be more fascinated with me as an entity overall, and it has worked, but it's not easy. There are barriers. There are pushbacks to everything. Well, and really, it's just about more ties, more, you know, more stickiness, yes. right? Yes, and, and, exactly. And this is it. something now relating this to pharmacy. Um, the day of just filling prescriptions that day, that, that, that ship sailed. Um, and pharmacies have to do things like clinical services. The more things that they can do to get people to come in the door, rather than just for, for a prescription, that becomes imperative. Um, when you and I were kids... You know, you went to the drugstore for for shampoo and deodorant and Tylenol and those things, and you went to the grocery store for groceries. Today, grocery stores carry all those other things. Now, if you don't take medication, then you don't have any reason to go to the pharmacy, right? I mean, you can get all the things you need at Costco or at the grocery store. Um, and um, so you have to give people a compelling reason to come into your business. And that's got, and you need multiple points, just like what you're talking about, multiple points of contact. So today pharmacies can do vaccinations, not just COVID vaccinations, but, you know, pre-COVID, you know, flu vaccines, things of that nature. You can do uh, disease state management, medication therapy management, all of these types of things that you can do offering to your, to your, patients to get them in the door and every one of those things is an important is an important aspect of exactly what you're talking about um, and we've had to do exactly the same thing here we if all we were trying to do was to to sell point of sale like we were you know 23 years ago when we started we wouldn't exist any longer you have to have multiple well, places that you're, you're and you're around. And it's interesting. I don't know how many of the pharmacists listening would know this, but your dad was really actually ahead of the curve. So he bought the Washington State liquor license. So if you wanted to buy a six pack, uh, we spent a lot of time in your store. You also had school supplies. You also had a pharmacy. Uh, you also had the shampoos. You also had, if I recall, art or kind of beach art 
at the beginning to your right over in the right. Yeah. Um, right. You had candy. I remember as a kid, I'd get M&Ms if I went there. My mom would let me like every other time I went. So you didn't have produce or your, your milk and your eggs, but we went to your store for a lot more than pharmaceutical stuff, a lot more. Yeah. And you're right, uh, Colin, you know, back in, even back in those days, um, uh, he wasn't carrying any groceries and today he is, uh, well, he just, you know, he just retired a, a, about a year ago and, and sold his store to another uh, young couple, but, but yes, he evolved and continued to evolve. And that was, I think you're right. My parents were uh, constantly evolving, but, but one thing you may not know, the, the independent pharmacy world has also changed dramatically. So the day of those really large front end stores, those are pretty limited. You still see that in rural, rural places around the country, but just like here in Olympia, when I started RMS, there were five independent pharmacies and they were all that same size, you know, 8,000 square foot front ends, full, full, uh, you know, uh, inventory of all kinds of things, including school supplies and toys and all those things. Those days are gone. 10 years ago, all the independent pharmacies here were closed. Uh, five years ago, they, there was five. Now today there's five uh, independent pharmacies again, but this time they're apothecary in nature, very little front ends and they're doing vaccinations and all of those things, those, the, the clinical services, compounding and things of that nature. Uh, and they found ways to make money, but they, they can't compete with the local grocery store and Costco uh, on that front end merchandise. So they've changed and evolved. Um, and I think that's the key is that we all, you, you're either changing or you're dying, as I said earlier. Yeah. I felt that my whole career. Yeah. So let me ask, let me ask one more question about, uh, about your new company, the volume. Uh, we talked about this before too. Uh, it was, it was, uh, talking about the importance of hiring good people and the right people. So let's talk about that because I don't think it's really any different in any business. Yeah. So, um, I got a sports gaming company to fund our company. It's not an exorbitant amount for what is needed. Um, podcasting is a very unique space. You do not need real estate. You can do all of it on zoom. So we don't have an office. I don't need an HR person. Um, we also don't need, so we don't need real estate. We also don't need a lot of marketing because of social media, Instagram, my Twitter accounts, all my podcasters have though. So we have an advantage. But what we wanted to do, we wanted to have a mission statement as I started this. And I, I'm a broadcaster, not a business person, but my, my, you know, my dad was in the market. He had the Wall Street Journal around, like, and I have a lot of friends in business. And so I wanted to create a company where we could both win. The pressure was on me, not just the employee. And so we do one plus one contracts. So you have a guaranteed one year. And after a year, you have the right to leave me or I have the right to leave you. Uh, these are not massive contracts. Uh, a highly paid podcaster could be $60,000. Um, you know, you hear these media, you know, uh, a, a big salary for a Jim Nance. That's not what we're dealing with here. And so what it creates is an urgency is that I have to treat. It forces me to listen to my employees and treat them well but it also forces them to create productive content. And I really like it. Um, and we've had to be emotionally disciplined. There's people that we think we may not be able to maintain, but, but it, but it really forces 
my tiny management team and myself to really be aware of our employees, how they see the world, how they think, and be treated like I always wanted to be treated. Now, I was mostly treated very well by corporate America because I think I brought a kind of a unique talent to my space. But, you know, I, I told, I've told everybody that we're going to treat podcasters like we think broadcasters deserve to be treated, which is allowed to make mistakes. I will be supportive. You are artists. They spill paint. Uh, you're not going to be lectured. You're not going to be hauled off to, you know, PR prison. And I think it gives it, 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 it there's a freedom as a broadcaster hiring broadcasters that they know I've made mistakes. We're not here to be punitive. We're here to learn, teach, see the world differently. And um, so far it's worked. It's been, it's been really, really fun. But uh, again, the word I would go back to, you think these are, you would never put um, um, disciplined and, you know, creative. We have to be both. We have to be emotionally disciplined to our mantras and our, our business, but we have to be creative and be willing to allow mistakes. And, and, uh, and it's a real delicate balance because broadcasters have their egos and their vanity. And we're all probably insecure who do this for a living. We want to be noticed. And so it's really been fun to, it's amazing. I don't know how this works for a pharmacist, but it's amazing um, one of the things that I did, Brad, when I created this company and it was really cool. So I talked to somebody uh, about creating this company and he said, you know, Colin, a lot of people you hire, they may have been fans. They may have listened to you. You've been on the air for 20 years on the radio. And so I thought about that. So what I did with everybody I hired, I got their phone number and I would call them randomly. Some didn't pick up the call. And when they did, I would say, hey, this is Colin Cowherd. Uh, I had a couple cry, a couple young broadcasters that like I was there, like the, I was who they sat in the back of a car with their grandma or their mom listening. And I, I wanted to create this real bond with them. I wanted to surprise them and let them know, hey, you're good. You're not making a lot of money now. I completely, absolutely believe in you. And you're going to be one of the first 10 hires for my company. That's how much I believe in you. And I think it's created a real bond with my employees that those were amazing phone calls. They were just amazing moments where you'd hear giggling. Some didn't know how to react. Some would scream, mom, you're not going to believe who's on the phone. That guy that drives you nuts on the radio in the morning. It was really, I, and I was calling people in Jersey, Iowa, Alabama. It was uh, just this kaleidoscope of the country. And it was, it was really a neat, experience for me. But again, I wanted, I can't compete with networks. I can't afford to. So how do I create this, this, this visceral, this emotional bond with these young, talented people? And uh, it's a challenge, but it's been worth every second. Yeah, that's, I love that story. That's terrific. The, uh, you know, and I think it really points out though, you know, you're investing in people that uh, you see uh, some, you know, there's a drive, there's some, they have motivation they're, uh, you know, they, they love what they're doing. Um, and you wouldn't be doing that. I mean, you're, you're taking a risk too. And in, in, in rewarding somebody, I mean, you have a brand, you call and coward are a brand and, uh, and those people can, you know, represent your brand. 
just like in a pharmacy, I think, you know, where uh, you talked about this, you know, because you've been doing this for 20 years, think about pharmacists like my dad, you know, who knew generations of families in, especially in rural America. Right. And I think it's sad sometimes when you hire the wrong people uh, and you don't get rid of them fast enough and the damage that an experience that somebody has uh, a negative experience somebody has with a but with an employee who hasn't been trained properly who who you know doesn't handle a situation properly how damaging that can be to to your business and 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 that community that you created over over a career um so i think to me, and this is one of the things that I really focus on here at RMS is hiring the right people. And when you do get the wrong person, which we do take responsibility for, we go, how do we do that? How do we make sure we don't do that again? Um, but you have to, you have to let those people move on yeah. <laughs> sooner than later. Well, yeah. I mean, it's hard. I was talking to a friend who's an NFL general manager of the Sandy, uh, the LA chargers, Tom Telesco, and they beat the chiefs this weekend. They sure did. <laughs> and, um, I, 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 I'm Tom's a dear friend. So I was just literally so nervous watching the game. Cause they've almost beaten the chiefs so many times, right? They, they, nobody gives away wins like the chargers do. <laughs> and I told him, um, after the game, I just texted him. I'm like, I'm so happy for you. I was a nervous damn wreck watching this game. I became a nine-year-old fan again. And he texted me back and he goes, it's so hard to win. You just don't understand sports is imperfect. You need everybody to buy in. And he said, we have this quarterback, Justin Herbert, and he has created Everybody believes in him. And he said to create a belief system among 55 alpha males. These are, these are guys with strong convictions and healthy egos and many are 24, 25. They're still forming personalities. He said to win games like this, you have to have such a belief system. And it all starts with our young quarterback from Oregon. And it, it, it goes back to, I think the pharmacy business or my business, um, I've worked so hard at what I do. I really believe in my content. I really believe in myself. And I have that inner scoreboard confidence that I don't worry about the noise. Um, that said, I've made mistakes with hires. And yeah, do. hey, the best general managers with Bill Polian's a Hall of Fame general manager. He built the Buffalo Bills into a Super Bowl team. They went to four of them. He built Peyton Manning's Colts. So twice he rebuilt organizations. And I asked him one time, he's very funny. Bill's a friend of mine. I said, did you ever just totally whiff? Like literally you knew instantly when you drafted the guy. He goes, yeah. He goes, I'm not going to say his name as we drafted an offensive lineman. And by the second practice, Peyton Manning looked at me and I looked at him and he just goes, I, I apologize. I deeply <laughs> apologize for that traffic. And, and he said, it's the worst feeling in the world, but some people they get to the professional level and they're overwhelmed and that's okay. okay. That's absolutely okay. You'll have players quit. You'll have players emotionally. They, they, they shrink in big spots and you just, um, Peter Chernin's a very successful, um, uh, investor in my space. Um, and, and I asked him when I created the volume, I said, could you give me some advice, a nugget? And he said, double down quickly on what works. And, um, do not, do not get stubborn what, 
with what doesn't. He goes, Amazon started as a bookstore. Netflix started with VHS tapes. Like, like don't be loyal to what's not working. Well, your job is to identify what is and what isn't and then activate your response. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's hundreds and hundreds of businesses that have that story. Blockbuster. Look at the difference between Blockbuster and Netflix. Blockbuster saw them, you know, as a rental place, the a brick and mortar rental place, and didn't invest at all in digital content. Um, and look where they are today. They don't exist. Yeah. And look at where Netflix is. <laughs> right. The biggest creator of original content now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in the world. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, the. Uh, so I, I, I uh, well, we could talk for, for days, I'm sure. Um, I, I do have to ask this, though. Um, boy, the mighty seem to have fallen over the weekend. Uh, Russell and the Seahawks tanked. The Chiefs tanked. Tom Brady and the, and the Buccaneers tanked. Uh, what's going on in the NFL? Well, it's a 17-game season, so you've added a game. And what you're finding is a lot of the teams did not play starters in the preseason at all. So the preseason now has changed. It's almost a waste of time. It really is. I mean, you get to a point now where I've argued for the last couple of years, I would just, I would just hold scrimmages, intense scrimmages. Veterans don't want to play uh, young players, you know, they don't want to play. And so what happens is September can be um, experimental. Yeah. Uh, but I always tell people Bill Belichick's worst month has always been September. His best month is December. And if you go look at the Andy Reeds and the Pete Carroll's and the Belichick's and the very good coaches, this is a process of growth. And there, uh, there is room with a 17 game schedule to experiment, to play players. You might not post Thanksgiving. Um, my, my primary concern with the Seahawks is um you can their secondary is weak and you can beat them death by a thousand cuts. So Russell Wilson is becoming a spectator in the second half of games. He's watching his, you know, he's, and then when he gets in, he feels that he's got to create something. They may overcoach overthink uh, because they feel they have to, they're not going to get the ball back if they fail. So then it psychologically affects how you call plays and, and the sense of we've got to do something special or we won't get the ball back. So, I think they'll work themselves through it, but in three games, they have been overwhelmed in time of possession. When your best player is watching the game and not playing it, that's a problem. (laughs) That's a huge problem. Absolutely. So, well, Colin, I really, really appreciate you being here with us today. Uh, This has been terrific. I hope our, all of our viewers have had a fun time as well and learned a few tidbits of information. Um, so maybe we can have you back at some point. Um, oh, I'd love to. I love that. I, I, I have I, no uh, idea. I, I don't know who I'm talking to. So I'm just, I'm picturing all these pharmacists in their jackets, literally <laughs> filling orders. And then they're listening to the sports guy talk as they're filling orders at their pharmacies around Cheney, Washington and Des Moines, Iowa. I have no idea who I'm talking to. I hope <laughs> I've enlightened them. <laughs> well, I know it's been a lot of fun. I know it's been a lot of fun for me. Um, so it's, it's, it's pretty cool to be on the this side of, of talking to Colin Coward and uh, doing the questions and, and hearing the answers. So uh, I, I do really appreciate your time and thank you for being on our, uh, our, our first anniversary show. Uh, so it's, uh, it's been, this has been a lot of fun for me. Climb uh, doing this on a monthly basis has just really, I, I was really nervous about it when we started this whole process 
And I think we've brought over the last year, we brought a lot of great content to uh, to the pharmacy industry because we bring usually speakers that are very, very well known in the pharmacy world as, as well as as well as uh, panelists that are usually pharmacy peers, their peers to talk about the things like we did today, earlier today with uh, a panel that you know talked about the things that are working in pharmacy. So it's been a lot of fun and uh, I appreciate all of the people out there that have made this possible uh, on my team and some consultants that we brought in. And I appreciate uh, all of the people who have really stuck in there and, and come to listen to our live version and then come back and listen to recorded content and I'm sure we'll have a lot of people as we post this uh, on the internet. Uh, they'll they'll find this and and uh, listen to our conversation. And I'm sure there's a few stories that nobody else has ever heard uh, today. <laughs> you know what? You know what? Let me ask you one question. Yeah. The jur- the journalist in me. Give me an exciting prescription, either on the horizon, that something that excites you after 30 years in this business that maybe it's an innovation in cancer treatment or or something happening in the pharmaceutical world that excites you that 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 you you see either just entering the business or on the horizon tough question huh that's why i'm a journalist <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You might have given me a heads up on this one, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And hey, I've tried Viagra. You can't use that as an answer, okay? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> well, I think um you know, I think that the the exciting the exciting things for pharmacy and uh, as we continue into the future, um both on a technology side and um, so you have the technology side that is continuing to offer all kinds of new solutions. Um, and I think there's a, there's a number of innovative things that are happening, um, on, on that side. But I think the biggest thing is really on, uh, the, the clinical services side where pharmacies have this amazing opportunity to interact with their patients much more directly and have a really have an impact on uh, the outcome of you know their health. Uh, so uh, using you know wellness programs and disease state management, these are things that they've been around now for a little while in pharmacy. But right. pharmacies are starting to get paid for them. But they're also starting to realize that if they if they start doing these things, um, they bring to the table those sticky points that you're talking about yes. that bring more patients in, give them a reason to be there. And there's all kinds of things that they can make money off of once they've done that. And that creates a loyalty to the, to the pharmacy. And I honestly, I, you know, I'm a technology guy and I love all of the things that are coming down the pike in the technology world. Um, but really when it come, boils down to it, it's, it's, it's human interaction that matters. Right. It's not technology. Technology can lead you and give you some additional things that you can do, but it's all about interpersonal relationships. Um, and that's what makes all the difference. Um, so, I mean, as a technology guy, I love the idea of using more and more of our technology, um, but all we are is conduit to help you uh, with that personal interaction. And it's all boils down to the personal interaction in my mind. Yeah. I don't think that's ever going to change. 
No, and it's it's interesting. I had a little health scare about a year ago, and I've done several of these Zoom calls either on my phone or in this space. Um, and it's amazing the quality of care I've received from everybody in the medical profession, pharmacists down. They really, you know, I know LA is a big city. That's where I live. People are in a hurry, but I have been struck by the decency and the, like the genuine concern. Um, I'm just, I'm always blown away. It's like America's very best. I'm just blown away. If you look at the stress we have put on our medical profession due to the pandemic in the last two years, and the service to me is better than it's ever been. The quality of people is remarkable. Um, and they've never been more stressed. They've never had more uh, chaos uh, and obstacles. But I, I'm, I, it makes me very hopeful. I know there's a lot of cynicism. And, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you listen to the media, it's, the doom is uh, near every corner. But in the world in which I live in the last year with my little physical scare, uh, I, I am so encouraged by the quality of healthcare in America. Well, I think, uh, you know, and I'm going to add to that too. I, I, I uh, we have to be careful about listening to the media, right? And you, you, right. you, you bring that up in your, in your uh, second book, honestly, you, know, you talk about that. Um, and I think one of the things, uh, and I know we, we, we were about to end and now we're not, um, <laughs> uh, now we're going down a different path, but uh, I think this is an important path because um when you we have information overload now you you now have social media that it can be in your face everything can be in your face 24 7 and and then we have the problem of um <clears throat> confirmation bias so now when you you know we we as humans we naturally have that problem but now you have computers algorithms google uh, that are actually Feeding it. The things that they think you are going to be interested in. And so now we're hearing more and more just the things that that a computer thinks that we should be reading. Um, and so I think you're right. I, I, I think that we hear a lot of negatives, but I'm not sure that the negatives are nearly as bad as uh, they may not be any worse than they've ever been. It's just that now it's in our face all the time. Of course. Um, th that That's a great point is that. Um, you know, I, I've said this on the air. Most people still like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, a glass of milk and to watch TV at night. That's how most of us are entertained. You think everybody is watching Netflix and they're paying for all these cable. Netflix's penetration in America is like 18%. Most of us watch sports on cable or have a favorite show on ABC, NBC, CBS. As most of us live very habit formed lives. Um, we like simplicity. We love our dogs. We love our kids. We have friends. Our teams drives us nuts. Our teams drive us nuts. Um, <laughs> we love to be loved. Nobody likes to laugh. For me, a good steak with a buddy and a big laugh is that that's never changed in my life. Is that uh, there are uh, there are books written about this that the choices confuse us, but simplicity is where we generate most of our happiness and the things that we rely on, that we trust, that we've known since we were 20 years old, 15 years old. Yeah. No, I wholeheartedly agree. So, well, once again, now we can wrap up and I, I, uh, I know we've kept everybody over, but I hope you really found this fun and I certainly did. Um, so thanks again, Colin. 
I appreciate oh, I it. it. And good luck. Yeah, good luck in your newest venture. Uh, we'll talk soon. Send yeah. my best to everybody. I'm so proud of you. Sure. Not surprised at all. Um, Same to you. It's just great. My friend. Just great. And let's uh, let's get together in Park City. Let's do it. At that <laughs> okay. I There we go. <laughs> okay. Thanks again, Colin. All right. Thanks, everybody. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.